How are you out there? Smile so I know what you're up to. Alive and well, amen. It's a good combination. Get your Bibles out this morning. We're in Mark chapter 9. I've been preaching about the miracles of Jesus. Jesus did 37 miracles in the New Testament, and four of them he cast out evil spirits. And this is part two of Jesus heals the boy with the demon. And we were in this last week, and I hope you were here for that. If not, I encourage you to listen to it online. Uh, we're gonna, it's going to take three uh, sessions to cover this miracle. This is part two. Uh, in just a minute, I'm going to read to you uh, some portions of Mark 9. But let's thank God for the word this morning. Amen. Did you enjoy worshiping the Lord? Amen. Refreshing, right? Refreshing like no snow. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that uh, you abide in us, Lord God, and your word uh, works in us to conform us to the image of Christ. Father, I pray this morning that you would allow the Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts and our minds, that we would be able to not just hear the word, but allow it to be tucked into our hearts so that we would be doers of the word. Father, let this text come alive to us today. And Father, allow us to just ingest all the good things that you've hidden in here for those who seek you with all their hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name and the church said. So we're here in Mark chapter 9, and this miracle is covered in three of the Gospels, Matthew 17, Luke 9, but Mark gives us the most detail with 16 verses. We're going to cover some of those this morning. Uh, last time we covered 14 through uh, just about 20, so I'm going to recap that and read our new material, uh, reading through verse 23. It says this, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around him and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one in the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do it. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Verse 20, our new material. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both in the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. We'll stop there for this week. These 37 miracles that are chronicled in the Gospels, only four of them deal with Jesus exercising dominion over the, the demonic realm. And he cast out a demon here in this boy. He's about to do that miracle, but the precursor that leads up to this situation is important. There's a lot for us to learn in the details. Now, in verse 14 through 16, we see the, the crowd arguing with the scribes and realize this is what sets the stage for a miracle. The common people who are in need arguing with the religious leaders over the implementation of Scripture. 
uh, an exercise in futility, a waste of time. Yet Jesus walks onto the scene and he says, what are you, what are you arguing with them about? And the crowd leaves the scribes and they run to Jesus. Why? Because what people really want is peace. They don't want to fight. They don't want to argue. They don't want to argue theology. Don't argue with people about your faith. Don't argue with people about scripture. Don't argue with people about, you know, things that they don't understand. Love them. Share your testimony with them, amen? And see, that's what touches people's hearts. Jesus was all about love. Jesus was all about meeting needs. So they run from the, they run from the scribes. They drop them like an old gym sock, and they run to Jesus. And they're like, wow, Jesus is here. And they're excited. And he's like, you know, wants to know what they're arguing about. And that question sets the stage for this miracle. The man speaks up in the crowd, and he tells them, you know, I brought my son to you. Your disciples couldn't heal him. And Jesus responds to this situation in frustration. You know, it's hard for us to, on one hand, realize Jesus is loving and he's, you know, he meets needs and he's kind and he's gracious. But on the other hand, you know, he's fully God and he was fully man. So he did get frustrated at times. Remember the time he made a whip out of cords and he went into the temple and flipped over the money changers' tables and he, he drove them out with a whip. That's the same Jesus who's loving, kind, and gentle. You see, this is another example of where he shows his frustration. You know, here's this boy. He's been afflicted for such a long time, yet nobody knows what to do with him. The religious people want to argue. The, the disciples have no spiritual power to help the situation. And so Jesus is frustrated. He's frustrated by two things, the lack of faith all around him, and he's frustrated by the lack of power in his disciples. God is always looking for faith in us. We don't impress God with our intellect, with our good works, with all our achievements. That's the world, amen? The world says, well, let me see your diploma. Let me see your achievements. Let me see your balance sheet. Let me see your net worth. And God says, I don't care about any of that. Let me see your faith. Understand, if you're in church and you don't have much of a relationship with Christ and all you want to do is some good works and show up for church and think that impresses God, you might as well sleep in on Sunday morning. God is not impressed. Not even, well, man, I, I dressed up and I look, this is the best I look on Sunday and I got a big Bible and I drug it all the way to church. God's not impressed with that. He wants to see faith. Faith excites God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Jesus is frustrated. He is surrounded by a lack of faith in the religious leaders, in the common people, even his disciples. They had no spiritual power to cast the devil out of this boy. They, they squared off, they went toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and they, they, they went down swinging. It, it, was a, it was a fail on their part, and Jesus is frustrated. He says, you wicked and perverse generation, how long will I have to put up with you? Is that what you want to hear from Jesus? No. He's frustrated, and rightfully so, because he's looking for faith. He's looking for spiritual power in his disciples. Verse 20, we, we catch up with our new material. He, he, he comes to the conclusion, bring them to me. And, you know, I, <laughs> I bet you he said it just like that. Bring them to me. You know, I'm, I'm frustrated with all you guys. All the disciples are like, uh oh going to be a long day. The people are wondering, what's he going to do? And they bring him the boy. Now, in verse 20, when they bring the boy to him, the first thing that happens, it says, the, they, they brought the boy to him. When he saw him, listen, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsions and falling on the ground. He began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Hello. 
Think about that. Now, you're all sitting there like, yeah, well, we're not too impressed. If someone came up here this morning and started rolling around and screaming and crawling up the walls and doing demonic stuff, come on, now your eyes are like, "Uh uh-oh. You didn't sign up for that. But yet this demon manifests right in front of Jesus. I don't know what his end game was, but that wasn't a smart move on his behalf. But he manifests. The kid's on the ground. He's writhing around. He's foaming at the mouth. Hello? And, and Jesus is faced with this situation. Now the crowd is attentive. And the scribes are probably hiding behind, you know, their, their prayer shawls at this point. And you say, well, why would, why would the kingdom of darkness manifest in front of Jesus? While the disciples weren't quite sure who Jesus was, and the crowd wasn't sure who he was, and the scribes didn't want to admit who he was, the devils knew exactly who Jesus was. Yet the enemy does this, and here's why. The enemy wants to do two things. Number one, he wants to project power, and number two, he wants to inject fear. If you're taking notes today, write down those two things. Project power and inject fear. See, this demon gets before Jesus, and he has an audience here, so what he wants to do is he wants to, you know, project power. So what what does the enemy do? He tries to suggest that he has a level of power and control that only God has. You see, the devil wants you to think he's equal to God, and he's not. He's a defeated fallen foe this morning. Jesus said it is finished on the cross, and it's not like there's this cosmic battle going on in heaven between God and the devil, and we're all biting our nails because we're not sure who's going to win. Jesus already won. When he said it is finished, he took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. All the power belongs to him. He gave us the power to tread on serpents and scorpions. The church has its foot firmly on the neck of the enemy. But the enemy wants to project that he has power and control that he doesn't have. This show that he puts on here is to suggest to the crowd, look what I can do to you. I can turn you into an animal. I can have you rolling on the floor, foaming at the mouth because the the kingdom of darkness is so powerful. So he, he tries to project this power that only God has. The devil's a hustler. He works in deception and misdirection. He tries to deceive the hearts of men to think that he could give them what they desire when only God can fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts, amen? 1 Peter 5.8 says this, be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, you might listen to that scripture and go, oh, man, lions, the lions, tigers, and bears, Pastor. There's three of them. Then lions are bad. You know, maybe when I was young, I could deal with a lion. David caught a lion by the beard and slew it. But you know what? Lions are pretty dangerous. Notice, the word didn't say he is a lion. It said he's like a lion. Did you miss that? Your enemy prowls around, rolls around, what? Like a roaring lion. The devil's not a lion. He's defeated. He's a toothless lion this morning. The only power he has is what you give him. And the only power he can get from you is what he can extract by deception. Those who know who their God is and are filled with the Holy Ghost are not intimidated by the kingdom of darkness. But he tries to project power that he doesn't have. Number two, he tries to inject fear. Listen, Demonic manifestations scare people. 
I've been here a long time. I've been in ministry getting close to 30 years. We've dealt with devils. We'd have to cast out devils. We've had them, you know, if, some of them make you a little bit scared. You know, and then you go to Hollywood, and you got all these movies, and you got all these, and you got The Exorcist. I remember as a kid, on Saturday afternoon, I was all alone. I watched The Exorcist. I was like, there's people crawling up walls, a girl's head spinning around, pea soup flying out. You guys Remember? little scary, right? And that's what the enemy likes to do. He likes to inject fear, uh, fear of the darkness. Uh, fear is the enemy's most effective weapon against us because fear melts faith. You can't have fear and faith at the same time. If you allow fear to overtake you, it will melt your faith. It will take away your courage. It will make you second guess your God. But if you drive fear out and you allow faith to take its place, nothing is impossible for you. Mature Christians are not afraid of the darkness because we know that Jesus has given us complete dominion over it. He's given us power and authority. Listen to Luke 10, 19. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. When he says by all the power, he means all the power. He doesn't mean just some of the power, some of the time, or if you're in the right spot. No, all the power of the enemy. He's given us authority over it. Listen, a Christian who's afraid of the devil is like a squirrel that's afraid of heights. Those two things don't go together. I watch squirrels in the trees, you know, and playing. I like to watch them. I've seen 60, 80 feet up in the air leaping from, I mean, tips of the trees into the, uh, and just not, not scared at all. I've never seen a squirrel on the ground looking for nuts. Go, do you see any nuts on the ground? I'm a little scared. I don't do the height things anymore. I've gained a little weight. Squirrels aren't afraid of heights. It's not in their nature. Christians shouldn't be afraid of the devil. It's not in our nature. Amen? So, Jesus shows us his dominion over the darkness, and the enemy's trying to project power that he doesn't have. He's trying to inject fear because that's his only play. Jesus, in verse 21, you know, he sees the show here that, that you know, this devil is created as it's writhing and foaming and doing, you know, what, what they do. And he doesn't even engage the demon. He doesn't say, you know, anything to it. And when you catch up here in verse 21, he says, and he asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? So right in front of him, there's all this going on. There's dust, there's growling, there's whatever flying out of the guy's mouth. And Jesus turns and he has a sidebar with the father. Totally ignores that. I want you to see that. And he goes to the father and he says, how long has this been happening to him? Like, he's indignant, like, this, you know, this has been allowed to remain. I wonder if he glared over at the scribes when he said it. How long has this been happening to him? Church, how long have you been letting this go on? He has a sidebar with the dad and, you know, he gets him to give the backstory, He totally ignores the devil. He doesn't engage the situation. He engages the father. Why? So that we can hear the backstory. How long has this been happening to him? The sages said, Jesus knew the answer to that question. <laughs> you know, Jesus asked a lot of questions he knows the answer to. In fact, all the questions he asked. He wasn't like, you know, I've been a little behind on this case. Would you bring me up to speed here? 
No, he knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He even knew the exact devil that it was there because a third of the angels, when they fell, God knew all of them. Jesus knew them. And here he is. You know, Dad, tell us your story. How long has this been going on? Now, while Jesus didn't know the, need to know the details, the people in the crowd did. And the father needed to say them. The father needed to say the story so he could hear it. See, Jesus wanted full disclosure, every fact on the table. He wanted them to know how long this has been going on, how bad it's been, and that nobody else has been able to address the situation because once the story was out, Jesus was going to smash the powers of darkness right in front of their eyes and show them how it was nothing for him. So the man, you know, he's asked to give account. And I want to say something to you this morning, there are times when God asks us to say things out loud that obviously he knows the answer to, but we need to hear it. Why does God ask us to confess our sins to him? He knows our sins. Now everybody's quiet. Sin, I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, he says confess your sins, and he says to confess one to another, but we have to confess him to him. Why? Because he's faithful and just to forgive us if we'll confess so he wants us to say it out loud. There's something that happens in our hearts and in our souls when we verbalize something, when we say it out loud. It, it does something deep within us. It brings a cleansing. It brings a release. And God asks us to confess to him. There are some things God wants us to say out loud and to confess, not because he needs to hear it, because we need to hear it. Now, God asks us to say some things out loud. He asks us to confess our sin. Please notice that I, I'm not telling you to confess to everyone and anyone. There are some things we need to say out loud before the Lord, but not just anyone. I want to tell you something. Only God can handle everything about you and I. Not, e not even poor Kim can handle everything about Pastor Rick, nor should she have to. But only God can handle everything about us. It reminds me of a story of four preachers that would get together and fellowship together. And at one of their meetings, they were having a conversation. And one of the pastors said, you know, we get together with our people and they pour their hearts out to us and they confess their sins and get peace. Let's do the same. Confession is good for the soul. So all the preachers agree that they're going to confess to one another. And the first preacher, he, he takes off. He, he says, you know, what? I want to just confess. I like to go to the movies and sometimes I sneak away and I go and watch a movie by myself. And then the second preacher says, you know what, I, I like to smoke cigars. And the third preacher says, I, I like to play poker. These guys sound like a lot of fun, don't they? The fourth preacher doesn't say anything. And they all look at him, come on, it's your turn. And he's not saying anything. And they're like, come on, what is your issue? What's your vice? And finally, with a wry smile, he says, I like gossip, and I can't wait to get out of here. Be careful who you confess to. Amen. If, it's amazing how stupid we are sometimes. You're, you're at the water cooler at work and you're talking to the office gossip and you tell him some personal information about yourself. Or, or he's talking about somebody and you're agreeing. Well, don't you know when you leave he's going to make fun of you? I wish I could take a picture of what I'm seeing out there right now. Yeah, be careful who you confess to. Go to leadership. Go to someone spiritually mature. Go to someone who doesn't have a gossip problem. Yes, even at Full Gospel Center, we have people who have a gossip problem. I'm, I'm aware of you. I'm, I'm watching you. 
And I want to just share something with you. That's what Christians call gossip. There are some things we have to confess to God. We have to say out loud to God and only to God. We need to be clear before him. In verse 21 and 22, the man gives Jesus the answer. How long has he been going through this? Well, here's the answer. It is from his childhood. And it has often thrown him both into fire and into the water to kill him. Say fire. Say water. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So the answer to how long was from his childhood. Now, realize, you know, dealing with this situation for a day, for a week, for a month would be exhausting. Dealing with it for years would be soul-wrenching. And here's this man, brings Jesus' his son, and it has been, he's been afflicted from his childhood. And I want to say this, of all the things that had been stolen from this boy, his childhood was perhaps the saddest thing of all. You only get one childhood. You only get one chance at it. And this, all of us have childhood memories. We have good ones and we have bad ones. We have childhood memories. This kid's only childhood memory was being oppressed by a devil, by being thrown around, by foaming at the mouth, by being a, a social outcast, by something in him trying to kill him. Gene, you thought your childhood was dysfunctional. As bad as we think we have it sometimes, there's always somebody who struggles with something worse. This boy's childhood had been completely stolen from him before the eyes of his loving father, and there was nothing that they could do. Now, let me tell you, the devil hates children. I'll wait for the other 79,000 people to respond. Let me try it over here. The devil hates children. That's what abortion's all about. Abortion's not birth control. It's not my body, my choice. It's not, you know, family planning. Abortion is the, the murder of children offered to Satan to the God of convenience. Oh, I can't have a kid now. I'm not ready to have a child. It'll ruin my life. I need to do X, Y, and Z. But, 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 but all the excuses and what it is is in the Old Testament, they offered their children to the deities and the, the gods that they worship, and they just offer them for their own betterment. And de the devil's always hated children. Back when Moses was born, oh, Pharaoh kills off all the children. Back when Jesus is being born, Herod murders all the children, the Hebrew children. Understand, the devil hates children. That's why he loves abortion. What does he hate about children? He hates their innocence, their simple faith, and their potential. The devil hates children because they're innocent. You know, when we're born and we're brand new and when we're grown up, we have a level of innocence that when we cross certain lines is gone. Have you ever crossed the, don't raise your hand, have you ever crossed the line in your life that you were like, I wish I never did that? I wish, I, because why? Now it's an open issue, you have baggage from it, you can't uncross the line, so your innocence is gone. Huh. I think of, the innocence I had when I was young, and I know that the enemy hates that. He likes to see people polluted by sin who give themselves over to lust, but a child is innocent. The enemy hates their simple faith. You know, a child will thrust his hand into his father's hand and cross a busy street of traffic and never second-guess his father. A child will fall into the arms of its mother and feel peace and safety and never second-guess their mother. But as we get older we begin to second-guess everything. 
Many of us second-guess God. God looks for childlike faith in us. It's seen in children, and the enemy hates it. What else does the enemy hate about children? He hates their potential. In years of ministry, I've been to the hospital countless amount of times with new babies, and every time I see a new baby, I see that little bundle of joy, and I think the unlimited potential here. Have you ever held a baby in your hand and think, what, what will this baby, how will this baby mark the world? The unlimited potential. Now, the enemy hates that, and he wants to snuff it out. He hates their simple faith because it's the kind of faith God wants us to have. He hates their innocence because a lot of us have lost ours. Understand there's an attack on children in the earth today. It's in the form of abortion, and Christians should stand against it in every way possible, in prayer, in everything that we do to see it come to an end because the blood cries from the ground, and it is in the ears of God, and it demands judgment. What else? was the spirit doing? Well, this boy was afflicted since childhood. He had lost his childhood. It had also been trying to kill him. Isn't, isn't that delightful? Look, look what it says, that what? It, it would often throw him both into a fire and water to kill him. So think about that. Every time this father was awake, he had to keep an eye on his son. Because why? The, the devil would try and plunge him into a pond or a river to, to, to drown him. A fire, he would jump in it to burn him alive. And there was this constant attack on the boy's life. And the, the tiresome situation that we see here in this man, I, I hope that you can feel for him. He's desperate, and he's before Jesus, and Jesus is his last hope. He had thrown him into the fire and into the water to kill him. Now, hidden in the man's testimony here is a clear contrast between two clashing kingdoms. What's happening here is there is a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness has manifested itself. It's writhing on the floor in front of Jesus. Jesus is about to manifest the kingdom of God and unleash the power that he has over the demonic realm. But you see a clash between two kingdoms here. John 10.10 says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so that they would have life and life abundantly. Do you see the contrast between the two kingdoms? Abundant life, death. Kill, steal, and destroy, life abundantly. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to choose the right kingdom, amen? But here it is right in front of him. There's a clash between two kingdoms, and I want you to see something here. It's water and fire that the enemy is using to destroy this boy. The kingdom of God brings life. How does it bring life? Through the waters of baptism. How does it bring spiritual power? By the baptism in fire. Jesus said that what? If you believe in our baptized, you'll be saved, amen? When we baptize people, it is what? It's identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. When you go in that water, the old man is put to death. When you come out, you come up in resurrection power, amen? It's life through the water. Then what? We're baptized in the Holy Ghost when we become saved and we're filled with the fire of God, amen? It's the kingdom brings life through water and fire. The kingdom of darkness was trying to do the exact opposite, bring death through water and fire. It was trying to drown him and it was trying to burn him. Do you see the counterfeit nature of the kingdom of darkness? It always tries to do the opposite of what the kingdom of God would do. So here you're seeing a clash between two kingdoms, and it's vivid. One is life, 
and one is death. The latter half of verse 22 is a bombshell because it validates the fact that Jesus' frustration was legitimate. It says here, and he has often thrown him and both into the fire and to the water to destroy him. Listen, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help him. Jesus is frustrated. Why? Because of the lack of faith he sees all around him. The man says to him, if you can do anything. Are any of you getting this? I mean, I don't know how Jesus maintained his composure at that point. My neck is stiffening up even I'm preaching this thing. But, you know, the man, the man, he's struggling with his faith, and we're going to talk about that. But Jesus, you know, he's right. There is a lack of faith. The scribes don't think anything can be done, and they're the religious leaders. The crowd is like, well, you know, everybody gave it a shot. Your disciples struck out, so we don't know. And the man is like, you know, if you can. He's looking at Jesus eye to eye, and that's the level of faith he has, if you can. You know, and it's easy for us to sit here today and go, come on, pal, it's Jesus, if you can. What do you mean he can do anything? But that man didn't know that. This poor guy was beaten up and his faith was battered and he needed, he needed to have his faith increased. Jesus' response to him is that what? All things are possible for the one who believes. So he's gracious in the way he tosses it back to the man he doesn't bite his head off. He doesn't go through the, oh, how long am I going to be with this perverse? No, he just, he looks at him and he's like, you know, all things are possible to those who believe. Now, Jesus' response to him is to him, but it's also to us today. And I want you to get this. Jesus' response to us is, whatever you're going through, listen, church, listen, full gospel center, listen, a person sitting in second service here on Sunday morning, all things are possible for the one who believes. You say, what things? All things. You mean everything? Yeah, all things. Not, not everything, just a few things. Some things. No, everything. All things. Well, there's got to be some things that are not possible. No, nothing's impossible for those who have faith because Jesus can do anything for us that needs to be done that we have faith for. But without faith, it's impossible. Because without faith, it's impossible to please him. What he's looking for is faith today. And what he says to us today is all things are possible for the one who believes. The kid's still writhing on the floor. Jesus is having a sidebar. He's encouraging faith right here. He hasn't even addressed the issue yet, but everyone is aware of the situation. And what he says to the man and to the crowd and to us today is all things are possible if we will just believe. So the question becomes, what in your life is oppressed or tormented by the darkness of this world. Maybe your relationships are a mess. Maybe your marriage is a mess and it needs a miracle just to survive. Maybe your relationships with your family, with your children are shattered and, and they need a miracle. Maybe your finances are so broken that debt is the only thing you think about and you don't have any peace or you don't have the finances to even do the will of God. Maybe your faith in the goodness of God has been shattered by the darkness of the oppression we see all around us. Maybe you just look up at heaven and, and think, God, have you forgotten us? God, what's going on? It seems like wickedness wins every round these days. Maybe you just don't have any faith left to believe that God is gonna come through and he's gonna allow righteousness to prevail over wickedness. 
Maybe your ability to overcome an addiction or a weakness is in question, and you think, I'm going to be stuck with this for the rest of my life. And the devil lies to you and says, I've got you. There's no way out. Maybe your ability to find meaning and purpose in life is shattered, and you go from one disaster to the next. Your life is a series of out of the frying pan and into the fire, and you think, this is the way it's always going to be. All things are possible for the one who believes. You and I need to believe God today for breakthrough, for freedom, for deliverance, for life, for blessing, for purpose. Do you believe that Jesus can do anything for you? Notice the man asks for something specific. He says, take pity on us and help us. Of all the things to ask Jesus for, when you got him right in front of you, Pastor Mike, eye to eye, you ask Jesus for pity? Pity is not much of anything at all. In fact, Jesus has so much more to offer us than pity. He has compassion to offer us. Pity looks to assign blame on people for the mess that they're in. You know, the scribes would look down on people. The Pharisees, they would look down on them like they were pitiful. Look at the mess you've gotten yourself in. That's why they enjoyed fighting about the, assigning the blame. Who's, whose fault was it? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Or, or you're a sinner. You must be a sinner. Or blah. You know, they, they just love to, you know, assign blame. Compassion doesn't assign blame. It reaches down. It looks past the blame. It looks past the mess, and it lifts the person up. Pity looks down on others from a better place. Whoa, I thank God that I'm not like other men. I thank God that I'm not in your situation. Pity looks down, uh, but compassion looks at the broken and the hurting eye to eye. Jesus didn't stay up in heaven and look down on us. He came into the muck and mire and filth of this world. He slogged it out in the trenches, and he looks at us eye to eye, and he offers us freedom. Pity feels sorrow for a person, but has no solutions. Oh, did you ever see something? Oh, them poor people, that poor, oh, I feel really. It's just an emotional connection. Pity offers, you know, some kind of emotional connection, but it doesn't offer any solutions. Where compassion goes past feelings, and it makes a difference. Thank God Jesus didn't just feel bad for us, but he died on the cross in our place, amen? Thank God Jesus didn't feel pity on us, but he rose from the dead and broke the power of sin, amen? Jesus has so much to offer us more than pity. He offers us compassion Today, he doesn't look down on us to try and assign blame. He doesn't, you know, want to squabble over whose fault it is. He offers us solutions. He offers us great compassion. He offers us deliverance from the things that afflict our souls. This boy was about to meet the power of God in a way that would bring total deliverance to his life. God has that same ability to deliver us from what oppresses us if we will just approach him by faith. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that this was not written so that we could examine a, a, a historical account and just, you know, find some comfort in it, but this was written not just for them and that man and that boy, but it was written for us Holy Spirit, today you want to drive fear out of your people and allow faith to replace fear so that we can see the power of God drive everything out of our lives that oppresses us. 
Father, I pray for those within the sound of my voice that are struggling with habitual sin, that are struggling with addiction, that are struggling with pornography, that are struggling with all kinds of sin, secret sin. Father, bring deliverance to your people today. Grant us the gift of repentance. If you're stuck in the mud, realize Jesus is not looking down on you. He's right there with you looking eye to eye and he's offering you a way of escape, complete deliverance today. Faith is what initiates the freedom, so approach him with faith. If you can do anything, have pity. No, Jesus, I know that you can deliver, save, heal, and restore, and I believe that, and I ask for it in Jesus' name. If you're here today while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and you've never given your heart to Jesus, you've never made a commitment to him, the Bible says that if we confess with our mouths and believe with our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, we would be saved. He made salvation so easy. You don't earn it by works. You don't earn it by achievements. You don't earn it by your suffering. You don't earn it by what you bring to the table or how hard you work for the Lord or how much you deny yourself. Salvation is not to be earned. It's a free gift. Jesus died in our place on the cross that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. What he offers is a clean slate and a fresh start, forgiveness and adoption into his kingdom as sons and daughters. If you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life, if you want a clean slate and a fresh start, I just want you to raise your hand today and the ushers are gonna put something in your hand. How many people would say, I would like to give my life to Jesus right now? God bless you, ma'am. God bless you. Hands are going up. Ushers, keep your hand up. Ushers are going to put a packet in your hand. I want Jesus. I want to give myself to him today. Praise God. God bless you. God bless you. Let's pray a prayer together. Say, Lord Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner, and you're the Savior. I accept you as my Savior and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I repent. Teach me to live a new way. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the power to be a son and a daughter of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, welcome to the family of God. Let's give God praise this morning.